and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. COVID has been hard for those among us who like to travel, but one of our favorite ways to assuage that desire is to read books set in different locations. Sweeping meadows, mountains that touch the sky, exotic locales, these places can whisk us from our humdrum homes. A Strong Sense of Place is both a podcast and a website where readers can find interesting bookish conversations with our guest this week, Melissa Juwan and her husband David, two expatriates living in Prague located in the Czech Republic. In this week's episode, she tells us about how they select the places they will visit each season, why place in a book has to meet very stringent specifications, and how roller derby helped her make some big life decisions. Amy, I'm having a a little bit of wanderlust today because we're talking to somebody all the way across the world, which is super cool. (laughs) It's our first international guest. It's pretty exciting. Her name is Melissa Julwan, and she is in Prague, and she is the co-host of the podcast Strong Sense of Place. So she is going to tell us all about Prague and moving there and the podcast and all things bookish. So Melissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm really excited. And I had no idea I was your first international guest. I feel like I should, I don't know, be serving treats or wearing a hat or something, (laughs) something to mark the occasion. Well, you happen to be talking to two people who love to travel, who love to read. And I'm really excited to talk to you because I am a person who, when I travel, I love to read books about the place where I am going. So your podcast, Strong Sense of Place, is that but on steroids. So (laughs) we're going to talk all about that. But first, I want to find out a little bit about you and about what started your love for reading. Oh, boy. I grew up in a really small town in Pennsylvania. And we didn't have a library when I was a little kid. But when I was about 11 or 12, we got a library in a storefront on like the main square of our town. And this is how cool I was, you guys. I used to roller skate to the library in my blue and yellow sneaker skates from Sears. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Because it was, you know, (laughs) like late 70s, early 80s. And I was thinking about this when I was getting ready to talk to you guys. I used to check out the strangest mix of books. Like I distinctly remember checking out a book about how to do algebra multiple times. I am terrible at math. (laughs) but I had it in my head that if I took this book out of the library, I could learn how to do algebra. I also vividly remember reading biographies of Harriet Tubman and Pele, the soccer player, multiple times. I don't know why those things struck a chord with me. (laughs) But I always loved that idea that the library was full of all of this stuff that you could choose anything you wanted and nobody was really peeking over your shoulder to see what you were doing. And it always feels like there's so much possibility there. Like you could be the kind of person that learns how to do algebra. It's right there. (laughs) Well, it's filled with the answers. No matter what the question is, you can search for the answers there. I also, of course, absolutely loved Judy Bloom. Mm. Who didn't in the 70s and 80s? Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Um, And we had a copy of, I didn't have a copy. Good heavens. I didn't have a copy of Forever. But (laughs) a girl at school had a copy of Forever. And I remember getting passed around. And the sexy parts were highlighted. (laughs) And Mm. people were hiding it inside their textbooks. Yeah. I remember hiding it under my mattress. I wonder how many copies of Forever there were that girls passed around because I think that ours also was a a copy that people passed around. Isn't that funny? It's it's so sweet when you think about it now. Like that book is not that racy. I mean, it's so adorable. 
I also used to always just pick up whatever my dad was reading. And that's how I got introduced to the author Lawrence Sanders. I feel like this is this whole thing is like a blast from the past because I don't even know if people know who Lawrence Sanders is now, but he was huge in the 70s and 80s. And he wrote this book called The First Deadly Sin, which featured Edward X. Delaney, who was a New York City detective and sort of tracked down serial killers. And then Lawrence Sanders also wrote the series of books featuring Archie McNally, who was kind of a rich, spoiled guy who lived in Palm Beach and solved mysteries for his rich family's friends. <laughs> and those are a little bit lighter. But as I was thinking through that, I realized that both of them have a really strong sense of place. So apparently I've Aww. been at this shtick since I was <laughs> 10 or 11. <laughs> Just the idea of getting transported somewhere else by what you're reading. And it was particularly important to me living in this little town in Pennsylvania. Like I didn't meet people from other parts of the world really. And, you know, I didn't know then that I was going to be able to travel and move to Europe. So yeah, it was a lot of escapism and kind of trying to understand the world by reading about these people in other places. So that's the perfect segue into talking about your podcast and, and the website, Strong Sense of Place. So you and your husband, mm -hmm. David, created the website and the podcast. So can you provide our listeners a little summary of, of what the podcast is about? Yes, of course. In each episode of the podcast, we choose one destination somewhere in the world and we talk about it. I do what's called the 101. So it's the basics of culture and history and a little bit of geography, just to kind of set context for what we're going to talk about. And then Dave does Two Truths and a Lie, where I don't know. I'm what terrible he, at that game. <laughs> and I don't know what he's going to ask me. So it's always really fun, but also a little nerve wracking because I feel like I'm going to look kind of stupid. I, and I always pick the ones that I want to be true, even if they're outrageous. <laughs> So we kind of set the context for the place we're going to be visiting. And then we talk about five books that took us there on the page. And it's almost always a mix of fiction and nonfiction and different genres and fun, we hope, <laughs> and a little travel inspiration, whether it's armchair travel or you're actually thinking about a trip that you might take in the future. I've listened to a handful of your episodes so far, and I love it. Two of them that I've listened to are actually places that I'm fairly familiar with, and it was fun to hear those, the Ireland and Pennsylvania. And I read a lot of Irish fiction. And all but one of the books that you talked about, I had never read. So that was really fun. It gave me a whole new list of books to read. I love that I introduced you to some new books. Places like Ireland have such a wealth of wonderful stories coming out of Ireland. Oh, um, yeah. I only got to choose three for that episode, and that is really challenging. From what I understand, the two of you sold everything, moved to Prague four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. So I want to know about that. So we were in our 40s and working nine to five corporate sort of grown up jobs living in Austin, Texas. And we realized that we really wanted to be traveling more. And extension of that was we wanted to have more flexibility in our lives to just chase after some things that we wanted to do. We wanted to have more adventures and see more of the world. So we started to think about how we could do that because trying to do that while having grown-up jobs seemed kind of limiting and we didn't really know how to approach it through that channel. So we made a list of things we thought we would enjoy doing that could potentially maybe someday make some money. And we picked one. And the one that we picked was make a cookbook. Because at the time, on the side, I was doing a blog about paleo recipes because I was doing CrossFit and I was experimenting with paleo recipes. And so we wrote the first cookbook. David took the photos. I did the recipe development and testing and writing. And we self-published it. And it sold like gangbusters. <laughs> it was really successful. People really oh, wow. liked it. And eventually I was able to quit my full-time job and focus on the cookbook business full-time. That was the first step to getting to Prague, which I know does not sound connected, but stay with me because it does. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we were visiting Prague. We came to Prague four times 
And on each subsequent visit, we became more convinced that we wanted to try living here. We did not know anyone at the time who was an expat. We didn't know anybody who had good jobs and quit them to chase after this dream of living in Europe. This was all foreign to us. Eventually, we got it together to start making the actual step-by-step plan to get from Austin, Texas to Prague. And it included almost three years in Vermont for David to get his master's in cartooning, which was just a little detour. Yeah, it's steps to move to Prague, get a master's in cartooning. I don't know. (laughs) What is it, Prague by way of Vermont? (laughs) Exactly. But what happened was he finished school. I finished the third cookbook in our trilogy of cookbooks. It was 2017. We were finally ready to move. It only took six years to make it happen, but we did it. And we moved to Prague. It wasn't a conscious decision at first when we moved to Prague to start Strong Sense of Place, but I'd kind of had this idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to move out of food writing and more into writing that felt closer to my heart as much as I love to eat and I like to talk about food in the context of traveling. It kind of wore me out to talk about nutrition with people. And I thought talking about books is got to be easier. <laughs> so when we moved to Prague, we started working in earnest on this idea and kind of exploring what it could be. Partially because like you, when I travel, I like to read books set in the place that I'm going to. And I usually choose novels. Dave usually chooses nonfiction. And we realized that was probably a good recipe for a show because we could give people a broad swath across the different stories that are available about a place. And we could share our enthusiasm for places that we've been, but also get really excited about places we hadn't been because, let's face it, we're not going to be able to see all of the things we want to do before our time ticks out on this planet. So this is kind of our way to share our enthusiasm for the world and for story with other people. And that is how we ended up in Prague. (laughs) Has David always been a big reader as well? Or is that something that you nudged him towards? He has always been a reader too. And that was one of the things that made us really like each other when we met. And his mom was such a devoted reader that when we were getting married, she brought a book in her purse to our wedding. (laughs) (laughs) I like her already. (laughs) And at first I was like, what? And then I was like, yeah, I mean, why not? There's probably some boring parts when you're waiting for someone else to get married. (laughs) It's not her wedding. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I want to talk about setting a little bit. So I'm an English teacher in addition to being a a book lover. So setting or place is one of the fundamental parts of any story, but it sometimes seems to get less attention than maybe it deserves. And and I feel like I should mention just that setting is also inclusive of time as well. So what is it that you find interesting about place? So a few years ago, I was a guest on the What Should I Read Next podcast with Ann Bogle. And that got me thinking really critically about why I like the books I like. And I'd never really done that before. I mean, I think unless you're in the talking about books business like we all are now, you don't necessarily think about that. Something comes across your consciousness and you're like, oh, that sounds good. And you pick it up and you read it. But when I started trying to figure out, like, what is it about these things that I like I realized that all of them had this common thread of really vividly describing some other place. Now I have to read books all over the world as my job. (laughs) I have to be careful about not only reading the kinds of things I would naturally gravitate toward, but I used to read a lot of police procedurals. I've always liked Gothic novels, you know, in a crumbling mansion. I always have preferred to connect with characters more than plot. But when I started looking at the things I love, I realized that they were all books that transported me to somewhere else. And that was just such an eye-opener. I've heard someone say that reading can fall into two broad categories. You're either looking in a mirror or you're looking through a window. And I'm definitely the looking through the window person. I want to peek into other people's lives. I want to go inside other people's brains. And if they do interesting things while that's happening, that is fantastic. And that's what makes a great book. But I'm first character and setting. The two things about it, too, that I like about 
a book that's strong and setting is for one thing, you can learn something. And I always like to learn a little something in a book. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about time as well, you know, historical fiction, that's a setting. You can learn about history. You can learn about a different culture, a different place. And so that's very fun. But the other thing is it's also escapism too. It's sort of yeah. like being on vacation, but sitting in your chair, drinking a cup of coffee instead. Melissa, you mentioned that character and place are important to you as a reader. Because sometimes a work can focus on place, and and that's beautiful and interesting, but other times place almost becomes a character. Mm -hmm. So do do you enjoy it when character and place meld together? 100%. When I can find those books for the show, I'm so excited when all of those elements come together really well. When we were first starting, we drew up a list of what our rules or guidelines were going to be for how we chose books. And the number one rule is the story can only take place here. If it's a story that you could pick up and drop into another place without fundamentally changing that story, it can still be a fantastic book, but it's not right for our show because what we're trying to do is very narrow in scope, which is if you have not been to this place, but you read this you know, novel or nonfiction book or cookbook whatever book we choose, you will have a sense of what it's like to be there. And to me, that is just magical. It's escapism, it's educational, it's inspiring, and it really builds empathy, which as I think we're seeing is even more important now than ever. You know, being able to really stand in someone else's shoes and see the world the way they see it instead of othering, uh, you know, people from another country or another culture. It just makes us kinder to other people. And I think also kinder to ourselves, which is just a win-win proposition. I just finished teaching Lord of the Flies Mm. to my high schoolers. They have to write a literary analysis paper. And I gave them a bunch of possible topics because we were online for so long, I started making videos. And so I decided I want to model how to write a literary analysis paper and have a video so they can watch it. And so it occurred to me, well, that's what I could write about. That wasn't one of the options that I gave my students, but I could talk about how the setting of the book informs all of the decisions Mm -hmm. that they make in the story. So it's been really interesting to me to write this. I hadn't even thought about that. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, duh, you know, this is hugely (laughs) important to the story. So that's what your whole podcast is about books that have a strong sense of place. But I was just thinking when you were talking, I think there's some books that people automatically go to. Like I was thinking about Heart of Darkness that being one or like my Antonia and being set in Nebraska. Are there some that just automatically your mind just goes to? Three things actually occurred to me while you were saying that. One, I would love to take your class because that sounds like so much fun. (laughs) I would love to do that. (laughs) Two, I feel like literature is when it's done well, is so rich that there's so many slices you can take out of it, right? So you can look at it from the sense of place. You can look at it from the character development. You can look at it from symbolism, whatever. Because as you were talking, I was thinking about how, for example, Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books. You can talk about Jane Eyre just by talking about the different houses Mm. and the era and the geographical location, like you can understand that story just by talking about the buildings that the people live in and why they were in those places. And so it's so fascinating to me how really good writing serves that up to us. We do some literature on the podcast. I sprinkle it in here and there. I really, really love Elizabeth Kostova's books. She wrote The Historian Mm -hmm. and she wrote Mm -hmm. The Shadowland. I'm desperately waiting for her to write another one. The Historian, for people who aren't familiar, it's a like a swashbuckling adventure through Europe on the hunt for the truth behind was Vlad the Impaler really a vampire and is he still alive? I love that book. Oh, the travelogue parts of that novel are so much fun. And the love of books and libraries and the respect for librarians. Like the librarians are the hero of that story because they're deciphering all of these clues that are buried in diaries. I mean, what more could you ask for? 
And she does a similar thing with the Shadowland set in Bulgaria, which is just another big adventure that kind of has tendrils into history. I really love books that have multiple timelines. I'm a big historical fiction fan, particularly for trying to understand other countries. We just did an episode on Vietnam and a couple of the books I read were historical fiction. And it just gave me a much richer understanding of the Vietnam War than anything I learned in school or any nonfiction books I'd read because it just really got to the emotional heart of the issue. Your podcast looks at different places. I, I mentioned a few, but you've done Russia, Morocco, uh, cities like Chicago, but you've also focused on the small places such as circuses or restaurants. So how do you go about selecting a place? <laughs> oh, there is so much talking when it's time to choose the new destination. <laughs> <laughs> Our seasons are 12 episodes. For each season, we choose from every region of the globe. So usually it's from at least one continent. And then also two U.S. states because the majority of our audience is the United States and we want to cover their homeland. And we choose three themes. And the themes are places that you can visit that are not geographical. So a train, the sea, the circus, a restaurant. And we kind of get out the world map and our list of where we visited previous seasons and where we think we might go next season and try to cover the whole world and think about books we know we really have a burning desire to read right now. And we talk to our patrons and our supporters on social media and ask them where they want to go. And then we try to pull all of that together and come up with a season that introduces all of us to new places and highlights some favorites. I did research before we started this project on where are the most visited places for Americans to go when they go on vacation? And Canada, Mexico, and England were the top three, which was eye-opening, but also we don't only want to take people to places where they speak English. <laughs> so right. that's, that's kind of when we got the idea to hit every area of the globe every season, and that has been a really good guiding principle. Have you been to the places that you've focused on so far? <laughs> we haven't been to all of them. We've been to some of them. And it's really interesting. It's been so much fun to talk about places that we visited because it reminds us of all of the things that we did there. And we can share our personal experiences and recommendations of things we enjoyed. What surprised me is how much fun it's been researching new places but the thing that it showed me is that if you take the time to try to understand a place, even if you think you would never be interested in visiting there, everywhere in the world has something really special that makes it worth your time and understanding, if not your visit. And it's been so amazing. I read these fantastic books set in Nigeria. And I watched videos of people going to the street markets and eating in Nigeria. And as a supreme introvert, I feel like Nigeria and particularly Lagos would be very overwhelming for me. But if, if I could magically transport to the street market and eat some food and then come home, <laughs> I would do <laughs> yeah. that in a nanosecond because it's so vibrant and the people are so friendly and energetic and the food looks so good. But it's also one of those places where when you're walking down the street, people are talking to you the whole time and you're meant to haggle over prices and it's very hot and energetic and very extroverted. So I don't think that would be a good fit for me for a vacation, but boy, I would love to magically transport there just for a little while. <laughs> I want to know how you prepare for the show. So once you have picked some of the locations that you're going to talk about, then do you Google like a book set in Nigeria? I mean, how many books do you have to read or do you get recommendations from people or how does that work? So it's a little bit of all of it. I read all of the book websites and publications, book sections, and there's a lot of Googling. I follow people on Instagram and see what they're reading. And anytime I come across a book that seems like it has a strong sense of place, I throw it into this little text-based database that I made. So I have, you know, over 200 individual documents named for every country in the world and every state in the United States. And when I find a book title, I just throw the title and author and description into that document. 
And then when we've picked a place, I go and review that and see if there are things that I'd like to read. And that's when the work really starts because we read samples, we read reviews, try to get a sense of if we would like the book, and then we start reading. I read three for every episode and David reads two. And we don't talk to each other about the specifics of our books. We only talk about generally what it's about and what the title is so that we can make sure that they coordinate well together. But we save all the specifics for when we're recording so that our conversations are fresh and fun. When I'm choosing my books, I even give myself another set of guidelines, which is after I've done a little research and I learned something about the history and the culture, I think about the place and what kinds of stories might give the best sense of that place. And so I usually pick three buckets that I want the books to fall into. For example, I was just preparing for the newsroom. We're covering the newsroom in our new season. And I wanted something set in a TV newsroom so we could get the sense of what it's like for people who are, you know, churning out content on film every day on the camera. I wanted something historical to understand more about the origins of journalism. And I wanted something with some atmosphere and character development. And so I started looking for books that fit into those niches. So I kind of add an extra layer of difficulty on top of <laughs> my, my reading, <laughs> partially because I want to make sure I'm giving our audience lots of choices, but also because once I start digging into a topic, I get really excited about the details and I want to know more about those things. When we started doing this podcast, it increased my reading by a lot because, Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I've always loved to read. I've always read a lot, but it it increased even more because I felt like I needed to have a new book to talk about every show. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, does this up the number of books that you've been reading and does it make it more of a job now than it did before? Like, are you still enjoying that process? I'm really happy to say that I'm still very much enjoying reading. And one of the things that's happened is once a month, I uh, let myself pick a book that I'm reading just because I want to. And it Mm -hmm. feels like the most delicious treat, even though all of the books are a treat. It's not so bad having to read a fantastic historical novel set in Vietnam. You know, it was great. (laughs) But as I said, I kind of tend toward gothic novels set in crumbling mansions. So once a month, I let myself pick one of those. And I also subscribe to this adorable bookstore in Scotland called Typewronger. He interviewed me for about 45 minutes about what kinds of books I like. And he sends me three new books every quarter that are a surprise. And it's great because I'm getting books that I can use on Strong Sense of Place, but they're also books that he really thinks that I will enjoy. So once a month, I try to pick one of those too and read that as a way to stay up on top of my subscription and to read new things that someone else has picked for me. That's so much fun. So what are some places that are on your list for the show in the future? I have one that I want to suggest to you. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Intent. <laughs> <laughs> but but what are some places that are on your list for next season? Well, eventually we hope to cover the whole globe and every U.S. state. So that is our general out there someday. Dave did the math one day. He thinks if we did it consistently, it would take us over 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there are some places where we're not going to be able to find five books. Like island nations tend to not have a lot of stories coming out of them because everyone is enjoying the beaches. <laughs> but that is our goal, to hit every country in the world. We just picked out our destinations for season three, and we did our usual get out the world map and I was going to say argue, but that doesn't sound very nice. We don't argue. We don't debate, argue. We have, discuss. We have passionate debates about <laughs> what we're going to cover. So the first four destinations of season three are Hollywood, which I read mm. such good books, you guys. I'm so excited about Hollywood. Costa Rica, The Newsroom, oh. and The Arctic. 
Well, the place that I was going to suggest is Appalachia in general, yes. not so much like a state per se, because yes. you can certainly find writers from Kentucky and West Virginia and Tennessee and Virginia, but yes. the area in general, we have interviewed lots of great authors from that area, and that would be a cool one for you to do sometime. We just did a survey of our audience, and that was a really popular destination. Oh, good. Definitely on our list for future Yeah, the regions get really interesting because then we don't have to look for books that are set in a specific state necessarily, and they can be so atmospheric. There's this book I read, oh, so long ago now, called She Walks These Hills. Mm -hmm. Do you know this book? Sharon McCrum, I think is her name. Sharon McCrum, yes. Yes. I've read some other of her books. Yeah. Oh, so good. It's very spooky and atmospheric and... I guess after she wrote those, she wrote several books that were like that, kind of almost ghost stories, but not quite. Very Southern Gothic. When I was looking on Ural's website, another writer that I saw uh, several times was Carrie Greenwood, Cocaine Blues, Dead Man's Chest, Death by Water. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't read any of those, but what is it about Greenwood's books that make her a repeat featured author? So she's the author of the Franny Fisher Mysteries, and she's written 20 of those. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the TV show, Miss Fisher's Mm -hmm. Murder Mysteries. No. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, this is a great day for you because (laughs) you need to watch that show. It's set in 1920s Melbourne, Australia, and Franny Fisher comes from a wealthy background She's inherited a bunch of money and she has moved to Melbourne and she has decided that she is going to become a lady detective. And the TV show is very close adaptation of the books. And the thing that I love about them is that they are pure escapism. You can read them as very light, frothy, kind of cozy murder mysteries. The violence is always off the page. But the plots also dabble in social and political issues of the time. So she's this gorgeously coiffed, beautifully dressed, really like sassy woman who is taking on some real social issues and standing up for women in a time when that was not necessarily what was happening. So they're super fun, but there's also some teeth to them, which makes me really enjoy them. And because it's a series... Franny goes on a train and solves a murder mystery. Franny goes on a cruise ship to New ah. Zealand and solves a murder mystery. So you kind of get like double sense of place because you get Australia in the time frame and then you also get her going into these other very iconic kind of archetypal settings, a manor house, a New Year's Eve party. So they're super fun. And we tend to not repeat authors on the podcast. So I cheat and write about my favorite series books on the website because (laughs) I can't ever really talk about them on the podcast. Where can you find the series? I believe it's on Netflix. Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries. Well, and it's great because if you like that character, there are 21 of these books. So you can spend a lot of time with Franny. So Melissa, how can people find Strong Sense of Place? Our website is strongsenseofplace.com. Our podcast is available everywhere you listen to podcasts. On social media, we are at Strong Sense of pretty much everywhere. Okay. Very good. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Melissa and Carrie. Carrie, I'm kind of bummed because I checked Goodreads the other day. It seemed like you were rating a lot of books and I started to get suspicious. And so I looked at your reading challenge. You are really beating my butt right now. And I'm kind of upset about it because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to catch up. And it's it's upsetting to me. We're a little bit competitive about this. We don't talk about it a lot, but I want to know what it is that you're going to talk about this week. It's one of those many books that you have read that is really sticking in my craw. So go ahead. Sorry. You know, here's the thing. Amy always ends up smoking me by the end of the year. So (laughs) I'm just going to love it and enjoy her having her momentary, you know, jealousy or whatever, what's going on, because it will get to be December 31st and I'll feel so good about myself. And I'll be like, I've read 104 books. And she'll be like, I've read 119 books, (laughs) you know. 
I think it was our last episode before the new year. We talked about books that we wanted to read in the new year, and I have been trying to knock mine out. So I just finished Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, and I loved it, gave it five stars. I had to keep reminding myself that it's fiction because I really wanted to believe that it's all true. We don't know very much about William Shakespeare at all. I mean, there's just not a whole lot of documents about him and his life. He did have a son named Hamnet who died when he was 11 years old. Okay. And he also has a play, Hamlet. And those two names, Hamlet and Hamnet, were like interchangeable. They're the same name. What Maggie O'Farrell did in this book is she imagines the story of William Shakespeare and the death of his son Hamnet, but it's really told from the perspective of William Shakespeare's wife. Now, her name was Anne Hathaway, but in this imagined story, her name is Agnes. I have read Shakespeare and I teach Shakespeare and I love Shakespeare. I love Hamlet, the play. And I just have this curiosity about Shakespeare. You know, we try to extrapolate from the plays what we think he was like as a person. And so this book, I think, does a wonderful job of putting a reader into what life was like during that time. They don't know what Hamnet, the the real life son, died from, but Maggie O'Farrell imagines it to be basically, uh, you know, the pestilence, the Black Death. So it was super interesting and just beautifully written. I mean, it, it... was so beautifully sorrowful. That's how I would describe it. Because Agnes is writing about the death of her son and how she has to prepare his body for burial and then taking him to the grave. And it was deeply sorrowful, but also beautiful. So I highly, highly recommend it. Well, Melissa, what what have you been reading? So we are still in a very strict lockdown here in Prague. So I treated myself recently and did two rereads with audiobooks of two of my favorite books. I usually have an audiobook, a Kindle book, and a print book going so that I can hit those at different times during the day. So for my morning walks, I revisited Less by Andrew Sean Greer and A Room with a View by Ian Mm. Forster. And after I listened to them both back to back, I realized... I chose those because they're both like travel logs of sunny places. Les is about a gay man who is 49. He's about to turn 50. His ex-boyfriend is getting married. He can't bear to go to the wedding. And he decides the only thing to do is to accept every invitation to literary events that he has received and go for a tour around the world. And that is such a great setup for a novel. And it won the Pulitzer Prize. That's not why I love it. I love it because the descriptions of the places he goes are so evocative. And it has this very sweet love story at its heart. I just absolutely love that book. I think I've probably read it four times. Okay, I'm going to add two more things about Les just to sell it. It starts in San Francisco. He goes to Mexico, Italy, Germany, Paris, Morocco, India, and Japan, and then finds himself back in San Francisco. So you get food and music and scenery and all of those places. It's very funny, but also really, really moving. I've (sighs) listened to the audio. I've read it in print. It's just a delight. And I feel the same way about A Room with a View. Both of these books are very sweet and gentle, but are also really making some smart commentary about the world. And A Room with a View just makes me laugh because it's set in Edwardian England, so right at the turn of the 20th century. And there are so many rules that everyone's supposed to follow. (laughs) And Lucy Honeychurch is always described as being in a muddle. And (laughs) she's in a muddle because she thinks the rules are stupid, but she doesn't realize that. When people are kind to her, the societal rules say that they're stepping over their boundaries. They're being too familiar. And she's thinking to herself, well, I don't know. 
that seemed kind of nice. <laughs> so it's kind of Lucy fighting against these societal constraints. And it's a little bit of a coming of age story and a love story. And it begins in Florence and everything is drenched in golden sunlight. And then it moves to Surrey in the English countryside. And we get the comedy of manners inside the manor house. It just has so many things I love. And the audiobook is narrated by Rebecca Hall, who is just a tremendous actress. I'm going to have to add here that A Room with a View is one of my favorite books of all time. Yes. I love it, love it, love it. But I also love the movie version with Daniel Day-Lewis as Cecil. So read the book. And then once you read the book, watch the movie because they are both amazing. I have not read the book. I've not listened to the book. I've not seen the movie. I am a complete room with a view. Why are we virgin? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I just got so excited for you because I'm like, you're going to get to read it for the first time. That's amazing. I know. I know. I think it's also <laughs> in the public domain. So anyone who- Oh, that's you, true. You can just go get that's your true. hands on that right now. <laughs> well, Amy, n- now that I know that I can shame you for not having uh, read <laughs> or seen or listened to a room review, tell me what you have been reading. Last week was spring break here where we live and we didn't really go on a big trip, but I did take my daughter- on sort of a long weekend to St. Louis. And, you know, I mentioned that I like to read books set in the place where I'm going to visit, even if it's just for a long weekend. So I had gone to our library, which had just opened back up the day before we left. And I checked out about five books that I had Googled that were set in St. Louis. This book I read, it's a wild romp of a book called The Curse of Jacob Tracy by Holly Messenger. And it is one of the most unique books that I have read so far this year. It is a paranormal Western that is really an adventure thriller. Our main character, Jacob Tracy, originally had been in the seminary to become a priest because of his father's wishes, but he soon realizes that that isn't really his calling. And the Civil War breaks out. So he and his friend leave the seminary, join the military to go fight in the war. And he's almost fatally wounded and in battle. And it's at this time that he starts seeing dead people. He thinks that maybe he's crazy or possibly that he's cursed by God because he left the seminary. And so he tries to keep the secret from people. But the few people he tells, they seem to die within a few weeks after that. So we jump ahead 13 years and it's in the 1880s. He's called Trace by people who know him. So Trace finds himself in St. Louis with his partner, a black horse trainer named Boz. And they work sort of odd jobs, but their main job is that they shepherd people who want to travel out west. And, you know, St. Louis is the gateway to the west. They meet this woman named Miss Fairyweather, and she says she has a small job for him. And he's to go to this small town west of St. Louis to retrieve a box that was left to her by a friend after her death. But once Trace and Boz go, what Trace realizes is that the box is also wanted by a demon. And this is the beginning of our whirlwind of a story that's filled with demons, ghosts, werewolves, bloodsuckers, and a Russian magician who may be an evil mastermind. And Trace has a special psychic power, and he's learning how to control it while also fighting for good. So this one was super interesting because it's set during the age when spiritualism was really a a popular thing. It's the time of seances, trying to talk to the dead. And this touches on that quite a bit. And there's also an interesting relationship between religion of all types and Trace's psychic abilities. My favorite character was actually his partner, Boz. Boz doesn't have any psychic ability, but he does have common sense. He often sees things more clearly than Trace, and they have a great rapport with each other, and it's a fun relationship to read about. This is a debut novel by Holly Messenger, and I I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was highly creative, and it's the first in a series. I think I gave it three stars on Goodreads, but it would really be close to four. I just wanted a little bit more character development. And you could really see as her book went on that she was really building up towards it towards the end. But there is a prequel to this book about how Trace and Boz meet, and there's also a sequel to it. And I intend to read them all because I think Messenger is really going to light it on fire in these next books. So this could be a standalone book, though. It doesn't answer all of our questions by the end, but it doesn't really feel like a cliffhanger to me either. 
That sounds amazing. And I can imagine Dave and I arguing over who would get to read that for St. Louis. <laughs> it would make an amazing TV series. I mean, it was just, it was really action packed. I like all kinds of genres. So I like paranormal. I like horror, but it wasn't really scary like a horror. I mean, you had werewolves and ghosts and demons, but to me it wasn't scary. And I do like some Westerns. And so that was kind of fun because they do travel, you know, to Idaho and to Wyoming. And that's where you get more of the Western feel. Yeah, it was fun to read. Well, and I'm thinking, can we do St. Louis in our next season so I can read that? <laughs> Amy, I, I'm starting to get the feeling that if you tire of doing our podcast, you're going to like send your resume to Melissa to do Strong Sense of Play. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Melissa her top five. We are back and we're going to ask Melissa her top five. So you have a background playing roller derby and I've actually gone to a couple of roller derby. What are they called? Competitions? Matches? What do you call it? Bouts. Roller derby bouts. bouts. Ooh, that's a word that I would not have thought of (laughs) for that. Okay. So how did you get interested in this sport and what was the top thing you learned about yourself from playing? As we've already established, I was a super cool roller skating nerd in the 1980s. (laughs) So when David and I moved to Austin, Texas in the early 2000s, there was a roller derby league starting up and they had posters all over town and they were girls wearing like short skirts and fishnets with their skates and really dramatic makeup and they looked really cool. And we went to watch about... And while I was watching, I turned to Dave and said, I've got to do this. (laughs) And one of our new friends introduced us to one of the roller girls. It was so funny. He said, I can introduce you to Pris, who was this like star of the game that night. And I was like, right now? You're going to introduce me to her right now? I completely freaked out. And she was very nice. And at the time, it was very new. The flat track roller derby surge started in Austin. So at the time, if you showed up for practice, you could be on a team. So all I had to do was show up for practice and I was in. (laughs) And I'd never played a team sport before. I roller skated a bunch, but I'd never played a team sport. And I am not competitive, which was not a popular vibe for my team. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was always like, come on, guys. If we played well, it was great. And they were like, no, we got to (laughs) win. So it was kind of a weird fit for me. <laughs> Did you have like a roller girl name? I do. It's malicious. Ooh. <laughs> and I was really worried that it. people would think I just didn't know how to spell malicious because it was spelled <laughs> malicious. I'm like, are people going to think I'm just illiterate? But I really like the name. So I went with it. <laughs> I learned two really valuable things. The first was that not everybody was going to like me and that was okay. And I was almost 40 until I learned that lesson. And I think it's because we were playing a sport that it finally sunk in because when you're on a team like that, people don't have to like you and you don't have to like them. You just have to do the job that you have on the team and make it work. And that was so freeing to me because I was still in that mindset that like if somebody didn't like me, I had to try to win them over whether I liked them or not. So that was great. Mm -hmm. Like that was a level of maturity that I achieved playing roller derby (laughs) that somehow I had not achieved yet in my life. And the other thing was along with the names, we created personas for ourselves. And at the time, I did not think of myself as a particularly tough person. And I decided that Malicious's persona was that she didn't take any crap from anybody, which was not my natural personality. I used to be a very big people pleaser. And it was really powerful to play that role and figure out what parts of that I could take into my everyday life. Obviously, I'm not going to run up to somebody and knock them on the ground if I don't like what they're doing. But that idea that I could decide not to be afraid to do something had ramifications in everything that I did, like writing the cookbooks, moving to Prague, All of that got much easier when I just acted like a person who knew how to do that and felt confident enough to do that. I love that. All right. Next question. There are lots of cool and weird museums. So what is the top weirdest museum (laughs) you've ever visited and why did you go there? 
The one that came to my mind first is the Vienna Clock Museum, which clocks are not that weird. But I was traveling with Dave and our niece, and none of us really had a particular interest in clocks. We were only going to be in Vienna for two days. And we decided instead of trying to see everything that everyone says you should see in Vienna, we were just going to pick two things, one for each day, and take our time really exploring them. And we decided to go to the clock museum, and it is one of the coolest things ever. It's in this three-story house, and every room is filled with dozens and dozens of different kinds of clocks. They have this huge display of hundreds of pocket watches, just beautiful little works of art hanging from their chains inside this display case. There's this enormous clock made from paper that looks like a carnival game. There are these big paintings with little clocks embedded in them. So you would have this thing like hanging on your wall like it's a work of art, but then there's a little clock hidden in it. There was a room filled with cuckoo clocks, and at the top of the hour, they all went off at the <gasps> same time. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it was just amazing. It was so magical and whimsical and surprising and entertaining. It was great. And we were all excited. And when Dave and I go to museums, we read every word on the placard. So we'd been furiously reading about all these clocks as much as we could. And the museum was closing, and we walked down the stairs, and we hadn't even seen the top floor yet. What clocks are we missing out on? And... (laughs) We decided to buy the commemorative museum guide so that we could have pictures of our favorite clocks and read more about them. And they were sold out of the English version. And we were so disappointed. (laughs) When we got home, we found a used version of the book online. We had to buy it from the UK to get it. (laughs) But now it's on my bookshelf. That is how much we love the Vienna Clock Museum. Rick Steves, we call him our travel godfather because we love mm-hmm. him so much. Yeah. And he always says to assume or pretend that you'll be back. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, it kind of takes the pressure off to shove everything in and exhaust yourself. Yeah. And it really does make it a lot nicer. Yeah. Okay. So question number three. So food trucks have become a big thing here where we are. You love eating different kinds of street food. So what is the top best thing about eating street food? And do you have a favorite? So I grew up dieting and having food rules, which is no fun. And one of the things I love about street food is that it feels really playful to me Hmm. because it feels like outside of the normal way of eating. When I was growing up, we had dinner together at five o'clock every night, everyone sitting at the table. So now when I go to a food truck or a farmer's market or a street market and I can just pick something out and eat it while I'm walking, I just find it delightful. (laughs) And I really love the stand-up tables, you know, the tables that like are a little bit higher because you're not supposed to sit at them. You just stand at them and inhale the awesome food you just got from the person who made it in their little food truck. In the fall before the pandemic happened, David and I went to Paris for a weekend. We went to this bakery to have coffee and croissant and baguette. That experience was lovely. We were sitting outside at little cafe tables having a coffee creme and we had croissants and we went back in to get a baguette and the adorable French boy who worked there said, He was so sorry. The baguettes were still in the oven, but if we wouldn't mind waiting, we could have a fresh one in 10 minutes. I'm so sorry for the inconvenience. So we got another cup of coffee and we sat down outside. And 10 minutes later, he handed us this baguette in a paper sleeve that was still so hot, it was hard to hold onto it. And we just walked through this neighborhood on our way to the farmer's market and a flea market in Paris, tearing pieces off of the baguette and eating them. And it was like the best thing I've ever eaten in my life. It was so good. 
there's something sort of almost magical about it sometimes, yeah. especially like when you're traveling. Because I think that street food a lot of times shows you the personality of the place more yes. than like a super fancy restaurant, you know, that you would sit down at. It's 100%. whimsical and it's magical and it really gives you a, a sense of place. Yeah, it and, really you know. does. Well, those things Our- that you can only get in a particular place yeah. are so special. Your next question, Jane Eyre is mm-hmm. your favorite book and it is mine as well. Mm-hmm. So if you have seen film adaptations <laughs> of the novel, I understand you have. Who is your top Mr. Rochester and why? Okay. My favorite used to be the 1996 version with Charlotte Gainsbourg and William Hurt. But in 2006, the BBC did the four-hour miniseries with Ruth Wilson and Toby Stevens. Toby Stevens is my Mr. Rochester. Why? Why is he the one? Okay, I love how closely the series adapts the novel. Mm -hmm. And he, I feel like, captures the way I kind of imagine Rochester, which is he's a little arrogant, but also has a sense of humor. And I love how flirty he and Ruth Wilson are. Sometimes in the adaptations and sometimes in the book, I feel like you have to read between the lines a little bit to see why they would like each other. And I feel Mm -hmm. like Ruth Wilson and Toby Stevens as those two characters show us why they like each other because they have these great conversations and you can see their connection and their kind of vulnerability with each other that I don't think you always see. My two favorites, and I think they have nothing to do with the book. Orson Welles as Mr. Rochester, to say that out loud, does not work. But that was the first movie version I saw. Mm-hmm. Like, I had no frame of reference. And so I think just pure nostalgia makes me sure. love that version. The other, I love Michael Fassbender. I mean, he is very handsome. Again, he doesn't match the book, mm-hmm. but he's just so sexy and I'm like ah I can't not love him so he brings the heat for sure I haven't seen any of these adaptations Amy come on like a room with a view and now you're laying this on me Amy I I know but I am stuck on Ruth Wilson as Jane Eyre because I only know her as sort of a villain like in his dark materials and in Luther I'm having a hard time so I'm actually googling it as y'all are talking like, she is stunning as Jane Eyre. I think she's so good. And that was her first major acting role. Oh, well, I might have to check it out right after A Room with a View. How are you saying? <laughs> okay, you might have to check it out. I feel like you have all kinds of assignments happening right now. She's going to be busy the next week. <laughs> okay, last right. question. Okay. So you're an expat, and that is something my husband and I talk about doing this. Mm-hmm. We fantasize about when he retires. We would like to move to Ireland, although really what our plan is that we would have a house in Ireland and a house here, and we would be in Ireland in the summer, and in the winter, we would be here. But it's it's kind of a daunting thought, moving to another country, picking up everything, and moving. So I want to know, what was the top hardest thing about doing that, moving across the globe? The thing that I was most worried about, I think, was the logistics, like... How do we do it legally? <laughs> Who do we talk right. to? What kind of paperwork do we need? What happens with things like taxes? Like I'm a nerdy old lady. So like all of that stuff was first and foremost in my mind. And when we started doing research, we found out this was completely news to me. Again, because we didn't know anyone who'd done this. And we were doing it as independent people, not within a company. There are people who you can hire to help you with your paperwork. Really? (laughs) As soon as we knew that, the cloud of stress just disappeared. Here in the Czech Republic, it's really reasonably priced. And they walked us through all of the things we would need to do. They picked us up at the airport when we moved here, when we came with our enormous suitcases and our cat. Here in the Czech Republic, all of your banking is done on the mobile. You have to have a mobile phone attached to your account to even use the website. So they took us and set up all of our bank accounts with us. 
and took us to the phone store and helped us buy a check mobile phone. Like the, it was just like having someone hold your hand through the whole process. And that was just such a helpful experience. And I had no idea that existed before we started looking at moving. One of the things that we've learned from traveling to all the places that we have and making this move is that, you know, the golden rule really is true. If you are curious about other people and kind to them, you almost all the time get the same thing back. Melissa, it has been so fun chatting with you and learning all about you and your podcast and the website. And we just have had a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. And I can't wait until we come back to the States to visit and I can talk to you guys about books in person. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.